When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. Okay, folks, this is a special episode, so special that we're going to present it in two parts. Our guest is Jerry Eisenberg, a true character and sports media legend. Nobody has stories or can tell them quite like Jerry. He's 91 years old and still writing as columnist emeritus at the Newark Star-Ledger. His newspaper career began at that New Jersey paper in 1951. Think about that. He has since written more than 10,000 columns. Jerry has won countless honors, including the Red Smith Award. He's been inducted into 16 Halls of Fame. 16! He's one of only two writers who covered the first 53 Super Bowls. He covered 55 consecutive Kentucky Derbies. Jerry's been a radio host, worked on 35 network TV documentaries. He's written 17 books, including a novel that he released in 2020. We'll discuss his full career in part two. But in this episode, part one, it's all about Muhammad Ali. Jerry Eisenberg covered more of Ali's fights than anyone. They first met in 1960 at the Rome Olympics. He takes us inside the vicious rivalry between Ali and Joe Frazier. He takes us around the world. Jerry was there at the Thrill in Manila, at the Rumble in the Jungle when George Foreman fell, and at Vegas on that sad night when Larry Holmes beat up his old friend. He puts us ringside and behind the scenes and tells us so much more about Ali. Okay, ring the bell. Time to hear about the greatest from Jerry Eisenberg. Um, Ali and I, of course, that was a friendship that was right. One day I said to my wife, you know, he he might be one of my five best friends. And she said to me, of course, she knows me. Okay, who are the other four? I couldn't name them. Uh, Muhammad because, Ali is that good of, was that good of a friend to you? Well, no, I and didn't have any friends. But who wanted to be my friend? You know, that was, <laughs> you know, God, I had acquaintances. I had about four million acquaintances. Yeah, I remember you. I know you. Uh, all right, uh, you you have since written ten thousand columns. Yep. And the one athlete that stands out among all of those, in your mind, has to be Muhammad Ali, right? True. That's absolutely true. How come? Uh, well, because we we became friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admired him for his stand on on Vietnam, and that's uh, I knew you know I met him in nineteen sixty at the Rome Olympics. Just a skinny uh, kid from Louisville. Oh, I, I didn't even go to his fight. He won a big deal. He won the light heavyweight championship of the Olympics, which is like being a Apache uh, rain dance chief today. You know, it, it didn't mean a thing. Right. But, he, but I'm, he, he's sitting on the steps in Rome and at the Olympic Village, and he's got the medal, and he's holding it up. And it, athletes are walking by above him, you know, on a, on a, on a kind of a street. Mm-hmm. And he's yelling, this is the Olympic medal, like they didn't know. And like half of them didn't have one. And he's saying, <laughs> uh, this is going to make me the greatest fighter in the history, the greatest of all time. I'm gonna re-. And I didn't pay attention to it until I noticed something. What? All the, and most of the people who walked by couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. They didn't speak English. And I noticed these three girls stopped after he was speaking and looked over their shoulders, stopped, and took a second look at him. And I said, there's something about this guy I better not forget. Hmm. I mean, he that's who he was. I mean, he was a very handsome guy, and he was brash. And, and, and I didn't pay attention to him. And he kept calling me on the phone when he got back, because Angelo Dundee kept putting him up to it. If we can get him in a fight. If we can get him to come see one of your fights, we're okay. Well, Dundee, I go. Dundee was trying to get fights he through was, you. Well, not that fight. He got the fight. He was trying to get publicity. He wanted me to come to the fight. 
Right. So Allie calls me from Pittsburgh, and he says, you got to come to Pittsburgh Thursday. I said, first of all, it's snowing in Pittsburgh right now. I don't like to stop for gas in Pittsburgh. Why would I come to see you fight a former professional football player who can't spell fight? Why, why would I come there to see you do that? He said, because in the fourth round, I'm going to up there. I said, fine, fine. Call me some other time. I'll talk to you. I got to go to work. He calls me back after he knocks out Charlie Powell. And I'm thinking, I ought to go see him once, right? As luck would have it, the first time I actually saw him in person, no television, no nothing, fight, was Doug Jones. And I thought he lost the fight. Yeah, Doug Jones knocked him down, right? No, no, he didn't knock him down, but he he, he won the fight. I thought, I mean, you know, and Allie was a house fighter at that point and getting ready. Well, the fight was not good. That's why he had to go to England and fight Henry Cooper. Cooper, right, right. Because the Liston fight was in jeopardy. But, I mean, we had, look, a guy, a guy by the name of Haywood Plumador that nobody remembers was an assemblyman in the New York State Legislature. And he got his committee to vote. They're going to have hearings about banning boxing from New York because New York is so pure, you know, they can put this up is, with the mafia, but they can't put up with boxing. All this right. is the early 60s. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. So I go up there, and I'm in the Grand Central Station, because John Condon, who is the PR guy for the Garden, said, it's going to be an exciting hearing. You, you want to come and cover it? And I said, yeah, I'm, I will come. All right. I meet him in the lobby, and there's this commotion in the lobby of Grand Central Station. Now, to get attention in the lobby of Grand Central Station, God forbid you drop a bomb or so. I don't know how people are going to work. They're coming back. It's 830 in the morning. You know, it's just, it's a mess. And I hear this commotion and it's himself. He comes in and he's waving a magic wand. He's got a wand in his hand. And these <laughs> poor bastards, they're in the gray flannel suit army. Uh, uh, army. They don't want to go to work. It's the same shit five days a week. They go back, and 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 then they're they're not getting along with their wives, and they have a drink. They're, they're just not happy people. He stops him. I will do magic for you. Who the hell is this nut? You know, and he and then he gets up on his toes and he says, "I am levitating." <laughs> I, I said, "I can't. I, 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 this guy is crazy." So we get on a trainer, and he p- decides to sit next to me. Oh, we're talking to the trainer. By the time we get up there, my ears are bleeding. He gets, he walks in. I notice something all of a sudden. The room is packed with with secretaries who work at the commission and in government buildings, and they all want to see him. They all want to see Ali, like the, his course. charisma. Yeah. He gets up, and Plumador says, "Well, I think it's very suspicious that you can call arounds in which you will win a fight." And Ali says, "Well." I know you're a good God-fearing Christian. You must have read the Bible. Uh, I'm a prophet. You know what prophets are. He said, I don't think you're a prophet. I think you're a thief. And Ali said, you think I'm a crook? Well, he said, he promoted him. He was an assemblyman. Well, Senator, all I can say is it takes a thief to know a thief. Not a joint breaks up, right? Now, we're going back to New York City on the midnight train. I go, that sounds like a song title. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and I'm writing in my room there. We, we took a hotel room. Of course, it's midnight. We're going to travel. He comes in the room. He says, I can't. I'm so tired. I got to sleep. I got to sleep. I said, well, lay down on my bed. I'm going to, my typewriter's going to make my say, You'll go to sleep. So he did. Ali slept let, in your room? Yeah, he slept. Well, <laughs> he, he, and he snored on my bed, <laughs> uh, which I never used anyway because we were going back that night. So I'm writing, he's snoring. Now, uh, wherever we went after that, he would say, put his arm around me and say, this man gave me his bed. This man gave me his bed. And finally one day I said, that's because I didn't know who you were. <laughs> that's the kind of relationship we But he had. never forgot. So, so Jerry, he, he, forgot became, he became one of your best friends until the day he died in 2016. Absolutely. Why did your relationship work? You were a you know, you were a sports writer. He's an athlete. Why were you able to develop this type of rapport? Because both of us realized 
early in the relationship. I would say he was a champion by then. It was, it was before the second Liston fight. Uh, we realized neither one of us is going to take any shit from the other. Mm. And, we, and because of that, we had a lot of fun because we would play the dozens. You know, he would say something, I'd say something to top him, he'd say something to top me. And, of course, I lost most of those because he was too good at that. And uh, it just, it was amazing. And I, I remember when he came back, Atlanta, was sitting in his broken-down fight. I don't know what it was. 1970, it was a gym, after his banishment. Yeah, gym, gym of some kind. I might not have even been a boxing gym. It was broken down. It was on the outskirts of Atlanta. Now I was sitting on this bench. As I recall, the bench had three legs, and we're rocking back and forth on it. The shower in the background is leaking. I mean, it's like a scene from Requiem for Heavyweight or something. Mm -hmm. And he looks over at me, and he taps the top of my head, and he pats my head. He said, when I first met you, you had hair. <laughs> and I reach across and tap him on the stomach and say, and when I first met you, you weren't walking around with a spare tire. <laughs> I said, face it, Muhammad, we're both getting old. He said, not me, you are, but I'm not getting old. <laughs> He didn't. He proved it. He proved it. Hey, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you again. So you you guys would give each other crap. You never really patronized him, right? Never, never. And he never. Uh, he never ran away from me. He always gave me good, true answers. You know, I'll never forget the BBC. I do a number, of, a lot of work with them, and um, I did a documentary about his life outside of boxing. And he, this is near the end. He was going to, before the Norton fight. So we're up in the Catskills somewhere, either Goshingers or Kutchers or somewhere. And it's drizzling. And you know that kind of drizzle where you don't mind being out and you smell the air, smells clean, mm -hmm. you smell the ozone. Yeah. We're sitting on two folding chairs, and I guess in Jenny Goshinger's backyard or wherever the hell it is. And I say to him, okay, now tell me how you feel about the Black Panthers. 1972, 3, 4, somewhere in there. And uh, he said, he wouldn't put them down. He said, they have, they they suffered. Like I, like we've all suffered. He said, but they don't understand that time has passed. Mm. He looked at me, it's the first time he ever said it. Wallace Muhammad, that's when the, when, when the I call it a cult because that's what it is, the nation of Islam. They're not really... Well, I'll say their rituals are sort of hyphenated. They're not really Muslims in the sense that Muslims would accept them. And they split because Elijah died, and Farrakhan had the hardcore remnants. Right. And Wallace, the son who studied in, in, the, in Egypt in Cairo, took the other half of the group. Ali went with that half, and later on they, they integrated, but they never had any white people want to go, but he would integrate them. And he said, hey, Brother Wallace is right on time, Minister Wallace, right on time. He said, that's why he said, it's, it's not about black and white. You know, Jerry, he said, it was very ironic. He said to me, you may not live to see it, but I will. Mm. And, and he didn't, and I, we may be getting, well, I thought we were getting there, but we've been set back. He said, black and white's going to be all played out. The only thing that's going to matter is green. Mm. And he looked at me because he was Muhammad Ali, and he said, and I'm going to get myself a lot of it. <laughs> uh, he was always on stage. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, you know, I want to talk about Ali. I want to tell you the two memories that I had of the two memories I only shared, uh, only one other uh, guy that I was a writer, Dave Anderson. Mm -hmm. New York Times, rest legend. His, rest yep. his soul. Uh, he and I went to find Ali after the Zaire fight. Right. Well, can I can I set this up for you? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So in 1974, you go into the Star Ledger editor's office of Mort Pie. You knocked on his door and you said, "I'm going to Africa." How did you learn that? What did Mort say? Mort said, "On vacation." I said, "You out of your fucking mind? No, I'm going. Ali's fighting." He said, "Do we need to fight?" I said, yes, we need to fight. He said, well, then you go. I'll see you when you get back. 
So he's fighting George Foreman. George Foreman, the champ, and Ali is trying to regain his championship that they was stripped from him in the late 60s for his refusal to be inducted in the armed forces. And now he's fought his way back for a chance at that championship again, and he's fighting George Foreman and Zaire. And you go to Zaire. What the hell was it like there, Jerry? Uh, I didn't lose anything there that I have to go back and look for. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I, I'm in no hurry to give the name is the country's changed three times since then. Um, I get there and immediately I got to write a column. And I forget the time difference is like 16 hours is right. And I, I just got to go. So I'm on the bus. I'm looking around and we're driving. I see a kid by the road with a dead monkey holding him up. He's selling him uh, for, for meat. He was one of the staples there. Mm. And I would say, all right, that's note number one. And what can I write? I got to go see himself when I get there. And then uh, he'll fill it up because he always fills white spaces for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did. And um, we were told by a guy, his name, uh, I'm not making it up. His name was Shimpupu Washimpupu. He was the PR guy for this venture, Right. The, the government's PR guy. I, everything was controlled. We get there, and I, I, he introduces himself. I write real fast because I see Ali. Give me what I want. Boom, boom, boom. I go back to the press center, which is there. We're in a place called Enceli. Enceli is a military compound. Foreman didn't stay there, but Ali did. Ali stayed there because Ali brought uh, Veronica Porsche with him and told his wife his square business, she couldn't stay with him. She had to stay downtown, ironically, in the same hotel that Foreman was staying in, the Omni. So I go to file a story, and the guy says, first, uh, okay, uh, we must go to the censor. I said, did we go to war yesterday? He said, well, you know, you go. And I, I, now the guy says, looks at me, the guy that runs the press center, he says, I can't send this. What do you mean you can't send it? What are you, a critic? What do you mean you can't send it? I can't send it. The machines aren't working. We had a machine called Telerams in those days. Um, uh, they might have been called something else, but they were typewriters they looked like, and the, that's right. how the area. And can't do it, can't do it. Must send for a technician to Kinshasa. Well, you know, I got a file. You got a, oh, we'll be here. Don't worry. Guy comes in and he fixes all the machines. Brilliant. You know how he did it? He plugged them all in. Oh, did you reboot it? <laughs> well, he plugged the whole thing in. He didn't take it out. They were right. never plugged in. Right. Uh, and get ready. So now we go back to the censor, and the censor gives me hell and uh, says to me, um, the censor, you know, you know, there are 38 uh, tribes and dialects in Zaire. Mm-hmm. It's, now I think it's a People's Republic again or something. And... Um, they they didn't get along with it. This guy was just missed being a pygmy because the pygmies were there. Very small guy, huge medals. I'm saying, who do they fight? What are the medals for? But I ain't going to argue with him. He says, uh, he speaks perfect English. Says, uh, nice to meet you, sir. Takes a blue pencil and begins. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. That's my name. What, what, what are you doing all the way? He said, well, you know, there's some things we object to here. Anyway, it got very serious, and finally, um, he blows a whistle because I'm arguing with him about the, taking this stuff out. Blows a whistle, and a, six Congolese soldiers come up and are pointing guns at me. Well, people are pointing guns at me before, and it's not an enjoyable experience. But, 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 but they're pointing guy, guns at you because of what you wrote. Yeah, but this, well, they, because the guy said, point your guns at him. They didn't know what I wrote. They couldn't <laughs> read. And... The one guy's gun is going like this, left and right. Left. And I realized she's never pointed a gun at me before. Now it's wider than the third tube of the Lincoln Tunnel. And I'm saying, hey, we got to do something. I apologize. What did I do? We'll tell you later. And they take me to jail. Well, when they let me out, which didn't take long, but it seemed like 19 hours. I mean, you know, you're in jail, you're in jail. You're in and, prison in Africa. You know, yeah. 
And I'm thinking, you know, now Fanny, you know, suppose they got a, a lever and they can pull it and I go down into the jungle and they never see me again. What, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you know, because this is on the outskirts of, of Kinshasa, a town which we were t- so modern, so everything we were told by Shimpupu. Oh, you love, you got to come here. Yeah. Um, it was so modern that it had one stoplight, which is a blinker downtown. Wow. And 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 the pe- only people who had cars were in the upper class. So if they hit you, tough on you. You know they get. What was the at- what was the atmosphere like? Well, how did the people receive Ali and Foreman? Oh, they loved them. He they comes loved Ali or Foreman or both. No, they didn't love Foreman. Mm. Ali made sure they didn't love Foreman. He's standing how? at the top. Standing at the top of uh, you had to go down the steps and you know there was no no internal terminal. You had to walk on a tarmac. So he's coming, he's at the top of the steps with Gene Kilroy, who was a business manager, a very, very dear friend of mine, lives here in Vegas now. And um, he says to Gene, who do these people not like? And, he, and Gene says, well, I, I wasn't going to say white people, I'm white. I mean, you know, <laughs> so I said the Belgians, the Belgians. Ali couldn't say Belgian, he said Belgiums. And because and, he, he had fought... The third, the bronze medal guy was a Belgium, according to Ali, in, in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So he says, the Belgians. So he stands there with his hands in the air and he says, George Foreman is a Belgium. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Ali, boom, yeah. So he says, what does that mean? Because you're asking me what it means? They get interpreted and Ali, kill him. And he goes, Ali, Boumaye. And then that, wherever he went, wherever he walked, the people would gather and yell, Ali, Boumaye. One guy was for Foreman, and he said, Foreman, boom. And that's the way most of the world felt about that fight. You know? Yeah, they thought Foreman was going to win this easily, Well, you know, right? the irony of that fight, we had about maybe 40 newspaper guys. I'm talking about Americans, you know, basically, you know, Canadians, Americans. The other guys I never counted. Um, and only two of them, you know, they take the AP poll. Two mm-hmm. guys picked Ali to win the fight by knockout. One was Jerry Lisker, the sports editor of the New York Post, and the other was Jerry Eisenberg. And this is how it happened. About 10 days before the fight, I said to Lisker, who was my traveling buddy all the time, kept trying to get me out of trouble. Not very successful at that. And uh, I said, let's go up to Deer Lake and push his buttons. And let's see what he's, he's getting ready to go. And we're going to go 10 days later. This, so we this go is up, Deer Lake where Ollie yeah, was training, training in yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Right. So we go up to Deer Lake. I knew something that Lisker didn't know. And very few people knew because Kilroy told me the last three years or two and a half years before – before he went into exile and shortly after that, he had traumatic arthritis in both hands. Hmm. And he stopped. Uh, when he went to fight Foreman, he, uh, about two years before he stopped hitting the heavy bag. Because of his hands, yeah. And if you look there, outside of the guys who couldn't even hold their own hands up, he wasn't knocking anybody out either. He, He'd, he'd wear them down and they'd faint finally, you know, by attrition. Mm-hmm. So we're standing in the doorway, and I swear, that's when I was convinced, this son of a bitch, rest his soul, my buddy, had eyes in the back of his head. Because he never turned his head. I swear, I he knew that we were standing in the doorway. Mm-hmm. He's banging away on the heavy bag. Boom, boom. I'm saying, what the hell is going on? Because he hadn't hit him for so long. Bang, bang. I'll knock that sucker out. I will knock that sucker out. People will, I will be the greatest of all time. Oh, hi, fellas. That guy, he'll never convince me he didn't know we were there. Mm. That was a performance art, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll knock him out. Well, then I find out he had, Gene took him to Philadelphia to a guy, a doctor. Uh, I don't know his name, but I wish I had him now in my back. Tremendous. And he said, don't take any more shots. None. And that was a slam at the fight doctor. Who was, and he said, no, no. You're going to soak your hands in 
hot wax three to five times a day, as hot wow. as you can take it. We're not going to cure it, but I guarantee you by fight time, you can throw the punches, they won't hurt, and it, 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 you'll be okay in the fight. So he did that. He soaked his hands in the hot wax. So I knew this now when we're leaving. As we're leaving, Jerry says to me, did you learn anything today? I said, yeah, I learned. I'm picking Ali by knockout in the eighth round. I think he knocked him out in the, I picked him in the ninth, he knocked him out in the eighth. We're a round off, but that's just a luck thing. Right. So he said. One of the great great upsets ever, yeah. Yeah, he said, well, why why would you you do that? I said, let me tell you something. You saw what happened in there. Then I told him about the arthritis. Uh, he says he's going to knock him out a long time ago. And I never thought I would be quoting Ali's poetry. But he said to me, if I say a mosquito can pull a plow, don't argue, hitch him up. I said, <laughs> I'm hitching my prediction to that, to that statement. And boy, when it happened, uh, I mean, it really, it was, we listener and I, Slap palms. We we both had that. There were thirty guys made selections. One other guy picked Ali by decision. The other guy, we were the only guys, and we picked it by knockout. What did and you I, What did you think, Jerry? What did you think as the fight unfolded when Ali was started doing the rope a dope strategy? What did you think was going on? And, and did you think? Well, first of all, let me tell you, uh, I have a different opinion. I don't call it strategy because he got hit in the first round. Now you know when Foreman hits you, he hits you. So he went to the ropes to figure it out. Mm. Well, he's standing there like this, trying to say, all right, now what am I going to do? Because that's the way Ali thought. And Foreman is winging these points. He's going to go, get through these two gloves. Going to get through the two gloves. I mean, you, you couldn't get through there with a mortar because Ali's holding his hands. I mean, he doesn't hit him in the stomach. He's going through the two gloves because he was stubborn. And he admitted right. that to me uh, years later. Ali says, well, this is not so bad. Let him punch himself out. The arms are heavy, big muscles. Uh, that, you know, you punch like a girl. Boom, boom, boom. You still haven't hit me. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, oh, you can hear that, Ali. Could you hear Ali oh, saying that? No, but he told me that later. Yeah. And, and Foreman told me that. Foreman told me he, he came up to him before the fight and said, you punch like a girl. And Dundee and the Brain Trust is yelling, get off the ropes, get off the, which I probably would have yelled if I were a, a corner man, get off the ropes. By the fourth round, Ali realized he wasn't getting off those ropes. Came and said, everybody here, shut the hell up. Just shut up. I know what I'm doing. Because mm-hmm. Angelo was a great PR man, and Angelo was a good trainer, not a great trainer, but he was great during the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, the you guy's doing this, you should do that. That's when he was really earned his money. Ali trained himself as far as do I want to box today? Do I don't want to? Okay, so now the punch is coming. All during the fight, Lisker, by that time, Lisker hadn't taken over the New York Post yet. Mm-hmm. He was the sports editor of the London Sun because Murdoch wound up owning both papers. So he's got to broadcast a blow by blow to a London because it's a shorter time frame. He's dictating during the fight. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because they're going to get it in the paper, they're going to get an extra round. And I said, what are you doing with the phone? He said, well, I'm going to do this. I said, yeah, the phone's not going to work. This is the morning of the fight. It's not going to work. Nothing works here. Don't you understand that? He said, look, and he dials the number, and somebody picks it up and says, hello, hello. And you see, it works. Jerry... I will take you to lunch at 21 in New York City if that phone works during the fight. And if it doesn't, all you got to do is get me a Big Mac. That's how (laughs) sure I am. Well, all during the fight, he's saying, he's on the ropes. I don't know why he's there. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, He's not getting tired. I think he's hurting out. He's won everywhere. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And this goes on all through the fight. Bing, bang. Right cross, sneaky right hand lead, left left hook, right again. But he's going down by that time. And as Lisker, he's going down, looks up. Can you hear me? And across the ring, the Belgian technician says, "Yes, I can hear you." He has broadcasted the entire fight from one end of the ring to the other end of the ring, and it's never got to London. 
<laughs> and that fight was better than Ali Foreman. Jerry went across that ring because <laughs> Jerry had been a boxing scholarship holder at San, at San Jose State. And, but, but the whole, anyway, it ends. Now, one of the two Ali, most- It ends. I mean, Ali wires him down. I mean, the rope-a-dope works. Foreman tires out. Ali knocks him out. What was it like at that moment when Foreman fell to the canvas? Well, it was, first of all, it was like chopping down a California redwood. He fell in sections, like his ankles hit the ground, then his knees hit the ground, then his chest hit the ground. He says he, he says today he thinks he might have beaten the count. I don't think he beat the count. And he didn't. He had no inclination to be. And like he said to me, I know he knew it because later on, years later when he won back the title, he said, I should have died. I should have gotten up and died not to lose that title right mm. then and there. What was the crowd's reaction when uh, when it was? Official? Well, the whole crowd was it was pro Ali. There were a fair amount. There were a number of American celebrities in it who couldn't re- refrain from posing, even in Africa, when people didn't know who they were. Um, several American novelists were there. Uh, Norman Mailer and yeah, others. Yeah. But anyway, it ended. Everybody goes crazy now. One of the two most poignant moments I ever had with Ali transpires here. It, After the fight. It, it pours rain, an African rain. If that had rained an hour earlier, there'd have been no fight. Mm. I mean, it was incredible. But this is Africa. When it stops, the sun is getting ready to rise. So I say to Dave Anderson, well, he's gone. And I said, I, you know, it was so rushed. We had, I'd like a second shot at this maybe for a follow for tomorrow. Let's go find him. And Dave said, well, if you know where he is, you know, there's like 3,000 acres on this uh, military thing. So I said, I think I think I know where he'll be because I know him. Something about the river is mystic to him, the Congo River. He's going to go down by the river. I just feel it. I just feel it. Mm. So we go back. We go down by the river. We're standing on a little hill. It's not big, but it, it's a rise, so we can see everything out there. Ali is facing the water, and he's looking toward what was once French Congo. And hes I see his head move. I know he's yelling. I have no idea what he's yelling. We can't hear him, but we can see it. Now, we also know whatever it is, it's not a performance, because as far as he's concerned, nobody is there but him, the river, and the crocodiles. That's it. Hmm. And suddenly he shoves his hands up to the sky in a rocky pose. And he's still yelling. Puts his hands down, stares, turns around, walks away, sees us. Walks up to us and says, fellas, don't ask me what tonight meant to me. I couldn't tell you. And if I could, I couldn't, I don't have the words. And if I could, you wouldn't understand them. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, when people ask me what I, the way I like to think of him, that moment, thinking he was all alone, arms to the heavens, facing out after having done an impossible deed, in that instant, he was the king of the world. That was one. The second was he, the Holmes fight. The Holmes fight was a horror. Right, in Vegas. I was in Ali's room the night before the fight alone, the two of us. And he said to me, who are you picking? I said, Muhammad, listen to me carefully. I didn't come here to talk about the fight. I came here to tell you, I would think this might be your last fight. And like everything else about him, I was wrong. He fought one more time. And I just want to tell you, we had a hell of a ride, didn't we? He says, it ain't over. He jumps up rips his shirt open, buttons flying, stands here, arms like this. Son of a bitch, he looked like he did the night before he fought Mr. He said, now what do you think? And I said, Muhammad, you could have done that in the European health spa. What I didn't know was he'd been taking diuretics for a month. He was so weak when he got in the ring, he could barely lift his arms. I didn't know that. Mm. After that fight, which was horrible, one of the most unprofessional mo- I like to think it was the only unprofessional moment in my life. But by the fifth or sixth round, he hadn't thrown a punch, in my opinion. 
And I'm yelling. I, I jumped to my feet and I yelled to Richard Green, the referee. Richard, stop the fight. You're going to get him killed. And then I mm. sit down and realize what I'd done. I mean, how unprofessional is that? Mm. And they stopped the fight two hours. And by the way, for, you, for your listeners' information, it wasn't Angelo Dundee who stopped that fight. It was Herbert Muhammad, the manager, who was sitting five rows back and got a gopher and said, go down here and you tell Angelo, this stops now. Yeah, and what a horrible happened. night when All right, now when Holmes beating, yeah. I I, I I I gamble I lose because naturally that's why these buildings in Vegas still are standing. I I sneak into the because I go they make the guy at the door knew me. I sneak into um the showroom and Sinatra is there as a featured attraction. And by the way, in the sign outside Sinatra was second banana. It was Ali uh, Holmes on top, and then and that was Sinatra in the showroom. Hmm. And he's talking about he just came from Ali's room, and he was a great man. And we said, and I don't want to hear this shit. So I walk out, and I gamble, I lose. I gamble some more, and I lose some more. Now I'm really pissed off at every. I'm pissed off at Caesars. I'm pissed off at Ali for having fought. Uh, I'm pissed off at the fact that Holmes was in an embarrassing position he didn't want to be in. Uh, yeah, because Holmes loved Ali. Yeah. So I go into, um, loved him so much that when Ali gave him a, a black eye as a sparring partner, he wouldn't put beefsteak on it. He wanted everybody to see the black eye when he got home because hmm. it came from Ali. All right, so I go into the men's room. It's like 3.30 in the morning. An elderly Afro-American gentleman hands me a towel, you know, when I go to wash my hands. I say, elderly. Today, he'd be a kid to me. <laughs> but back then, he, he had lines on his face. He was old and compared to what I was, you know. I was in my 40s. So um, I said to him, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, go right ahead. I said, did you bet on this fight? He said, you bet I did. And I said, who did you bet on? He looked at me. And then and didn't say anything. And he looked at me again. And then he said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. Greatest eulogy I ever heard for Ali anywhere, anytime. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio versus the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. All right, Jerry, so you were ringside at one of the most famous fights ever, the Rumble in the Jungle, when Ali regains his championship from George Foreman. And then a year later, you're in the Philippines for the Thrill in Manila. And you can't talk Ali without talking Joe Frazier. So Ali and Frazier, the third fight in Manila, what was it like in that arena? It was the greatest heavyweight fight ever held. Some people want to debate me on that, and I explained to them, I, my camel died on the way to the um, Cain and Abel fight. So I missed the first <laughs> two rounds and it ended before then. I knew who won him because I was wrong. Cain had a mark on his head and I thought that Abel had hit him, but that wasn't what it was. So the greatest fight I ever saw was the greatest heavyweight fight. Probably the greatest fight that, that in which there were no knockdowns which it went 14 of the 15 rounds. Unbelievable fight. And I knew things going in that other guys, a lot of guys didn't know. For example. Well, tell us, tell us, yeah. Yeah, I will tell you. Yeah. Uh, and we'll keep it between us. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast. We'll see. I'll millions, find out. Jerry, millions. Well, then I can't tell you. I'm sorry. Well, well what, actually, happened was, what, right, what happened <laughs> was this. Eddie Fletch was the manager by then. Of and, the trainer, yeah. Yeah, and the trainer, yeah, and the trainer, because Yank Durham died. 
And Frazier was a good friend of mine. Frazier was a marvelous man. I really, we had a great rapport. And he used to call me the Ali man, but, we, but you know, we did have our own relationship. Fudge gets a hold of George Benton, great middleweight fighter who now is a trainer. He says, George, I'm taking you to camp, and here's your job. We got like two or three months to get ready for this fight. And I think they knew it when he fought. I think that fight was privately made before he fought uh, Foreman. And um, because he thought it would be his last fight, clean up all accounts, right? Mm -hmm. So Futz says to uh, Benton, this is your job. Teach him to throw a right hand. I don't care if it's any good. I don't care if it misses. We got to, Ali is the most thoughtful fighter I've ever seen. We got to give him something to think about because everybody knew George was a one-handed fighter. I mean, you, Joe was a one-handed fighter. Yeah, because Joe was a left hook, the mighty left hook. He could, you know, he could triple up on a left hook. It was amazing. Wasn't there something about his arm that made that yeah, especially yeah, powerful? Yeah, he, he, his father was a sharecropper, very, very poor family. And... Uh, Joe's job when he was about 10 or maybe 9 was to uh, bring the big pig they had in and out of the sty they had him in. And he was chasing the pig in, and the pig changed, turned on him. And now he ran away, tripped over a rock, and broke his arm, and left arm. And the father looked at him. The father had one arm, by the way. He said, mm -hmm. well, it'll be all right. We don't have any money for a doctor. It, It'll be all right. We'll watch it. You'll be okay. They never went to a doctor. His left arm was deformed. Frazier's from, from being broken. Yeah. Yeah. And for some crazy reason, it enabled him to do more with it than most people could do with their left hand. I, don't ask me why or how. That's what Joe said. That's what his son Marvis said. And that's what his daughter told me. It had to be true. And so the left hook is what knocked down Ali in that first fight that he won, Frazier won. I'm going to tell you a story about that in a minute. I used to tell him, hey, if your right shoelace comes untied, don't take another step because you're going to fall on your ass because you can't tie it with your right hand. you got no right hand. And, and Benton agreed with me. But Benton taught him to throw this little bitty right hand, and it got a little better as he learned. The whole idea was to distract him. Now, in round one of that fight, Frazier almost got knocked out. Yeah, because it was like, it was one-sided early. And, and not only that, I wanted to ask you this. In that fight, there was like no air conditioning in that arena, right? No. It was blazing they, hot. Well, I will tell you, uh, Marco's wife had a hand in the building of the arena because she was like him. She stole everything that wasn't nailed down. So instead of air conditioning, they said, we'll put the roof here, the, uh, a roof here, and then the real, uh, then the top of the building will be open, but it'll be here, and the wind will come in through the space and everybody will be air conditioned, right? In the ring <laughs> That's was what like they call air conditioning. It was about 115 degrees in the ring when they turned the lights on, maybe more. But he's losing the fight, and I'm saying, I think Joe's lost it. I mean, lost it, period. He, went, he can't fight. Bing. He hits him with the right hand. Now, you got to understand something. Frazier, Joe, and, and he always talked to each other in the ring. And Allie talked to everybody in the ring. Allie would say to me, why do you write that crap? I don't speak in the ring. I'm focused. I'm, he, he was so into the fight, he didn't know what he was doing. Now, if you, i got to digress for one second. We go back to the first Frazier fight, and he knows he's lost the fight. He's out for the 15th round. He's got to knock Frazier out. Mm -hmm. And Allie had this trick. He did it three or four times in his career. He could stop the clock and turn back time for like 15 seconds. After 16, then he was Allie at whatever age he was. So he comes out, and if you look at the team, bing, bing. I mean, he's looking great. He's got to knock him out. He's screaming at Frazier. Now, I didn't hear this, of course. Frazier told me the story a week after the fight, and he, I know it's true because I heard him yell at about other things. 
He says, fool, fool, you've got to fall. It's been ordained. I will be heavyweight champ forever. You can't stand up against God. You can't stand up against God. And the second time he says that, Frazier slips a punch, left hook, side of the head. And as Ali catches this, Frazier says, well, God's getting his ass whipped tonight. That's a true story. <laughs> Three years later, they were talking again in Manila, right? Oh, and yeah. You're sitting ringside and you can hear this. Now he yells at Frazier. You ain't got no right. Frazier hits him with the right hand and he stops. Didn't hurt him, but he anyway, and Ali, Ali had a, a boxing IQ of like nine million. I mean, he said, something's wrong here. This guy can't throw a right hand. So he said, you ain't got no right hand. You're too old. You can't throw a right hand. You can't do it. And Frazier yells, well, you better go talk to George Benton because here comes another boom. <laughs> now the fight turns. <laughs> now it's like a Wall Street graph. Alley's up, alley's down. Alley's up, alley's down. No knockouts until the very end when they're almost dead. No clinches. Why are there no clinches? Good question. I mean, you think about this. The greatest fight ever held and no, and no clinches that mean anything? Yeah. Heavyweights, two days before the fight, um, the alley group, registers a protest with the commission, the Filipino Boxing Commission. We do not want a Filipino to work this fight as referee. What we want is Zach Clayton. Well, of course they wanted Zach Clayton because Zach Clayton loved that Ali. Well, Fudge didn't want Zach Clayton. Fudge had another candidate. I think it was Jay Edson. But they both agreed on the reason. No Filipino was big enough to separate these two guys because it's really emotional, right? Mm -hmm. The rules meeting. I go to the rules meeting, which is usually nothing, but I want to see what happens to the protest. I want to see who's going to work this fight because referees have styles too, and that can impact on the fight. So in comes this guy. He's a colonel in the Filipino army, reaches in his pocket, pulls out this cannon, puts it on the table. Biggest gun I ever saw. I don't know what the caliber was, 190. I, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, I understand there is some controversy about the official. There will be no controversy. This fight, and he taps the gun, will be refereed by a Filipino. <laughs> Any protest? Not me. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything with that gun out there. Not a word. Now he brings the referee in. It's a guy named Sonny Padilla who later moved to Vegas and worked some fights out here and then went to work for the government. Sonny is the biggest Filipino I ever saw in my life outside of Roman Gabriel, the Graham's quarterback. He's big, he's broad-shouldered, and he worked a masterful fight. He's the only guy I ever saw caution Ali. Right at the start, Ali had a habit put his hand behind your neck, pull your neck down, uppercut. He put the hand there. The uppercut never came because he jumped in and said, next time I'll throw you out of the arena. Mm. He controlled the fight. Frazier hit him low, same round. Next time I'll throw you out of the arena. So they didn't clinch. They were afraid of this guy. It was marvelous. So up and down, up and down, up and down. And now... We get to like the uh, the 12th or 13th. I haven't seen the fight for a while. I got a copy of it. I watch it a lot. And um, now Frazier's in trouble because his eye is starting to close. Both eyes, really, but this one in particular, the left one. Yeah, he can't see. Can't see And right. when he goes out for the 12th or 13th, Fletcher said, look, you got to straighten up. Now, Frazier was an in-the-crouch fighter. He couldn't, you know, you got to straighten up. I don't want you fighting when you can't see or I'm going to stop this. All right, now when he straightens up, that's an invitation. Jab, jab, jab. Frazier is standing there in the 12th to 13th round, maybe somewhere's in there. Arms at his side. Legs are trembling like wet spaghetti. Ali's a foot away. All he's got to do is walk a foot, push him, fight over. Ali could not walk that foot. Hmm. that's how much these guys left in that ring. And when it ended... In the 14th, the 14th round ends, and Eddie Futch tells Frazier he's going to stop the fight. Well, he tells him, no, he, he wouldn't. He, 
He knew he'd have trouble. Mm-hmm. He says to Benton, cut off the gloves. Benton takes his scissor and Frazier gets up. He says, you touch these gloves, I'll kill the both of you. And, and Frazier says, son, your eyesight means a lot more to me than who wins this fight. They stop the fight. Meanwhile, Kilroy, who is in the corner, and we disagree on the only thing we've ever disagreed on about Ali. He says Ali had developed a habit because people would jump in the ring and he didn't want to get hurt. After decisions, he would fall to the ground. He couldn't, after two steps, he fell to the ground. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Ali was so exhausted, he just So fell. you don't know whether, who knows what would have happened if there was a 15th round. Thank God there wasn't. I had said in the 12th round to Jerry Lisko, who was sitting next to me, let them send these guys home and say they both won. I can't watch this anymore. I mean, it was the most brutal fight I'd ever seen in my life. And it ends. And now Ali is walking up the aisle. And it's Dave Anderson, Jerry Lister, and me. Well, we, we were three guys he recognized immediately. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he had to pass us, when he got to us, he leaned in and he said, fellas, that's the closest thing to death you'll ever see. Wow. And he goes by. And uh, he wasn't far from wrong. So I had a now, I got to write this, a time difference. I got like 30 minutes to write a column. To write a story is one thing. To write a column with an opinion, here's how I started that column. I said, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier did not fight for the WBC Heavyweight Championship here in Manila last night. Nor did they fight for the championship of the planet they fought as though they were on a melting ice flow in a telephone booth. And what they were fighting for was the championship of each other. Mm. And in my opinion, that never has been and never will be settled. Mm. That's, that was pretty good. You did an amazing job summing it up well, there, Jerry. Well, well, be, Under well, the gun, too, man. <laughs> if, I had, if I had time to think, it might not have been that good. Well, the thing was, that was such a bitter rivalry for Frazier. It never really went, his bitterness about Ali never went away, right? Like 25 years later, Ali, didn't yeah, Ali they use a, you? Didn't Ali ask you to tell Frazier well, that he was Well, they, they had a, they had a uh, phony reconciliation at one point, but it was phony. 25 years after the fight, I'm saying, still the best fight I ever saw. And I've seen a few thousand fights. Okay, I'm going to do a retrospective 25 years later, see if these guys change any opinions. So I get, I get um, Sonny Padilla, the referee. I got Angelo. I got Eddie Futch. I got a couple of other people. And I got the fighters. Now, I, I, first I call Ali. He says, you know, I don't know why he's mad at me. I said, Muhammad, you know, you know, you know Marvis. You've seen him grow up. Mar- Marvis came home from school crying. Joe, Joe's son, Marvis. Yeah, because they were calling his father a gorilla because of his father saying, "I'll be a thriller and a chiller when I get the gorilla in Manila." And and you know, his son was in tears. How do you expect him to think about you? He said, "Well, I, that wasn't my intention. I was trying to sell tickets." I said, "My old man taught me." Never bullshit a bullshitter. You weren't selling tickets. Those tickets were gone. And 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 sorry, but uh, you owe him an apology. He said, were you going to talk to him? I said, yeah. He said, right after I hang up this phone, I'm calling him. And I'm going to tell him everything you said. He said, okay, you tell him. I said, if Marvis was really hurt, I'm sorry about that. It was never my intent to hurt his family. I said, I'll tell him. I call up Marvis. And before we go into it, I tell him what I'm going to do. And he says, you speak to him yet? He would never say Ali. You speak to him? I said, yeah, I spoke to him. And this is Joe. This is Joe you're talking to. Joe, yeah. it's Joe. What, 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 what did he say? And I told him exactly what he said. He said, he said that, exactly that. I said, absolutely. Was he sincere? 
I think it was. Call him back when we're done and tell him, take his apology and shove it as far as it will go up his ass. That was 25 years after the fight. Now, Ali was still alive but couldn't speak years later. And I go to the boxing writer's dinner. I'm getting some kind of phony baloney award of some. And at the table next to me and my wife is Joe Frazier. He leans over and he says to me, you hear him today? You hear him try to talk? That's somebody up there giving me justice. He went to the funeral. I mean, no, he didn't go. Ali went to his funeral. That's luck would have it, yeah. But they never, Ali, he knew he went too far. But he was having such a good time. And the world was having a great time. The gorilla, Manila, you know, it just... They loved it because they didn't think it was going to be any fight. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't see the pain it caused Frazier. Oh family. no, absolutely. Well, you know, pain is a funny thing. You know, that kind of pain is so subjective. You can't. You say, well, what, what the hell is he? You know, they split the two fights, the first two fights, and uh, he was the champion, and Ali gave him a shot the third time. Why would he be mad at him? That's why. Joe is a very, very sensitive guy. He had an aunt that he loved in South Carolina who was dying. And um, he wanted to go to funeral. But what nobody knew, and I didn't know it at the time until later on when Marvis told me, he was nearly blind in his left eye doing a lot of his fights. And the way you got approved by the commission, you know that thing you hold up, which is one, one side of it is black, got a block in it, so yeah. you have one eye here. Okay, now flip it over and give me the other eye. He would drop it on the floor. When he picked it up, he'd go back to the good eye, and that's how he passed the commission each time. Wow. Uh, Faked him. Anyway, the point was he couldn't fight, but he wanted to get to her funeral. I said, well, how did you? Because I knew at that point about the eye. He said... Um, I saw the t- I saw a taillight in front of me, and it was going to South Carolina. Somebody I knew was going to funeral. I just hooked in behind that taillight, and that's how I drove to South Carolina. Uh, but I, I had to see her. He had story, you know, and he had a lot of bitterness about Ali, which was not Ali's fault. Remember when Ali said he got into boxing because some kid stole his bike? Mm-hmm. That was the big story. That was a good story. Frazier said. <laughs> And well, no, he did. But right. the point is, Frazier said, don't tell me that, man. He was 12 years old. and he, I was 12 years old. I was plowing a field, working every day. And in the morning, all, all the boss said to me was, I'd say, morning boss, and he'd say, to the mule. And then I'd say, lunchtime boss, and he'd say, in an hour. And then afterwards, I'd say, Quitting time, boss, and he'd say, in the morning. Hmm. He's, I was 12 years old. That's what I ran away from. He, had a, he, he was mad about his bike. I got to New York, and I, I went to see, I couldn't do anything. I was fat. I wanted to lose weight. I went down to Philly because I had an aunt down there, and I lived with her. And, uh, and uh, I worked in a slaughterhouse. I used to hit cows between the eyes with clubs. And there'd be blood on the floor all over, like a, like a river running. And he had a hard time going up. I had a, I, I started with nothing, and I fought well enough that I was discovered by uh, the first manager, Yancey Durham. And he put together some guys who put up some money and whatever. But he started getting a salary the minute, the minute he turned pro. Right, um, right. I don't want to hear about his problems. I got yeah. my own. Well, that that rivalry is as good as it gets in sports, uh, as brutal as it gets in sports. And, and as you undecided. knew them well, I mean, you knew all the heavyweights, Liston, Patterson, Norton, Holmes, Tyson, Holyfield. And you wrote about them in one of the great boxing books I, I want to make a plug for. Once they were giants, the golden age of heavyweight boxing, uh, which was re-released. And, and it's a great, great book. The paperback, which is the new one, has right. a forward by Manny Pacquiao. That's the book I want people to buy. 
Yeah, I highly recommend it. I mean, you know, nobody has boxing stories like you, Jerry. How's that for an Ollie fix? With Jerry, you just turn on the microphone and let the tape roll. We have another hour with Jerry Eisenberg in part two. In that episode, you'll hear about other athletes and great moments from his illustrious career. Please join us. Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.